please remain standing as we read God's Word. And as we do, uh, just so you all know, we are now in between the bodily ascension of our Lord Jesus and between the descension or the coming down of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. There's about 10 days here where we are waiting for the Spirit to come down. And the disciples have obeyed Jesus. They're in the upper room praying together, waiting. And so as we read this passage, I want you to ask yourself, why did God give us this passage? Why did we need to know about this little 10-day span between Jesus promising the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit actually coming? So with that, would you hear now the good news of what happened to the church after the bodily ascension of our Lord? Acts 1, verse 12. Then they, that is the disciples, returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. And all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. And he said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in the ministry. Now this man bought a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Ekeltamah, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. And so one of the men who have accompanied us during all this time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to the resurrection. They put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who is also called Justice, and Matthias, And they prayed and said, You, Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the eleven disciples, eleven apostles, excuse me. This is God's word given to you because he loves you. You be seated. Um, have you experienced great loss? I'm sure you have. Uh, just this past week, we had some new neighbors over. She's a professor of soil uh, and geology at the U of A. And her and her husband, and they were holding their six-month daughter on their lap. And so throughout the conversation, I said, um, just this simple question, you know, how has it changed having a daughter, having a new baby? And you could see the tears well up in the father's eyes as if the question had caused this great chasm of loss to show up in his soul, as he said, uh, you know, we actually had another one who died at 41 weeks in the womb. And in that moment, what do you say to comfort that man who you barely know? And what do I say, right? And the more you live in this world, you understand that this world is filled with so much loss. And I say that um, because the question we want to know as Christians is, how does God comfort us in this loss? And this is the same question you see in this passage. It's not just individuals, but it's the whole early church. All 120 of them. That's all there is in the early church right now. They've experienced this incredible loss. Not only has uh, 
their Jesus, their Lord and Savior, bodily ascended. He's no longer with them. But also, they have the pain to memory of Judas, one who had been with them for three years, who had betrayed them, and betrayed Jesus. And in that moment, uh, you know, we only read of 11 disciples. Luke only accounts 11 disciples. He does it on purpose. It's glaring to us that there's this huge loss in the church. And you have to imagine how the disciples felt. I mean, this is the man they sweated with, they slept with, they hugged, they kissed, they debated. They did all these things with him. And the whole time, he was devising a way to stab him in the back. Like, the question is, how does God comfort the church in the midst of great loss? Um, and, in, and in the loss of our lives, which I could go on and on with you about the stories I've heard, right? And you all have stories. And this year alone, from friends and from students, I've heard of divorces, the loss of, you know, family members that they loved, miscarriages, and a loss of friends who, who abandoned them, and a loss of friends to the faith. All this happened this past year for me and the, and the students and family I know. And I think that we have this passage because God wants to comfort us and say that he can provide for us in his loss. That the good news is that God can actually provide for us in our loss. He really can. And this is what I mean. Um, I mean it in three ways. And so we're going to work through this passage together. Uh, the first is that God provides for his church in the midst of loss through Scripture, through the Bible, through his word. You notice what Peter does. He stands up in front of all the 120 people. And all of these are experiencing great loss, right? All, as many of us today are. And you can almost see the pained memory of what Judas had done come to, to Peter's mind when he says, Judas became a guide to those who had arrested Jesus. Like, you can almost see him imagining Judas coming in the garden in the night with clubs and swords and torches and a whole army behind him to arrest the one that he loved. And all these people are wondering, how could Judas do this? I mean, Jesus chose these apostles, remember? Luke 6 makes it very clear. Jesus chose all 12 of them. Acts 1-2, it says, these are the ones to whom Jesus had chosen, these apostles, and yet one of them betrayed Jesus. And they're all wondering, like, how does that happen? Like, why would that happen? And to comfort them, Peter stands up in verse 16 and says, it's because Scripture had to be fulfilled. That the Bible had always told us that the Messiah would be betrayed by someone close to him. That the church was always going to experience collectively this kind of loss. And so to prove it, he quotes Psalm 69, which is about a suffering one, an innocent one, who's been betrayed by someone close to him. And someone close to David had betrayed him. Someone who was within his counsels. And so what David does is he calls curses down on this man, this Judas, whoever he was to David. And he says in verse 24, May his camp become desolate and let no one there dwell in it. Peter is trying to tell the group, he's trying to comfort them and provide comfort for them by saying that the scripture foresaw this would happen, that the Messiah would be betrayed by someone close to him, and we know who this is, it's Judas. And um, this little editorial explanatory insertion in verses 18 and 19 about what happened to Judas is important because it explains Peter's interpretation and citation of Psalm 69. That we know the story of Judas from Matthew as well, where Judas, feeling guilty because he betrayed the one he loved and got 30 pieces of silver for it, overwrought with guilt, went back to the temple and the Pharisees and he threw that money back to him. He didn't want it. And the Pharisees, being good Pharisees and all, decided they can't use that money because it's blood money. Ironically, it's the very blood of God, that kind of money that they sold out. And they took that money, and they bought a field in Judas's name. And, they took, uh, and so tradition has it that what Judas did was, and many scholars and commentators agree, that he, he went to this same field, and Matthew tells us he hung himself, 
and the branch broke, and so he fell headlong and touched something sharp, which is what, how the, the, the bowels gushed out of his body and the blood. And this is why all the people heard of it, and all of them called it uh, the field of blood. And so tradition has it that this field became a cemetery. So the words of David really became true, that no one was to dwell in it. It became a desolate place. And so thus Peter comforts the people by saying, by quoting scripture, that in this loss of the church of Judas the betrayer, this betrayal did not catch God off guard. The scripture foresaw this whole thing and what Judas meant for evil, God intended for good. And so Jesus even knew this too, remember? If you, he quoted John in John 17, 12. He's praying to the Father and he says, Father, while I was with the disciples, I kept all of them in your name, which you've given me. I've guarded them and not one of them have been lost except the son of perdition. Why? So that the scripture might be fulfilled. And so Jesus and Peter and God comforts us in our loss, in the loss of the church, by actually giving us the word, by scripture, uh, that God knew. And that, you know, that kind of messes with me, just to be honest with you. Maybe it messes with you, because we still don't know why. We don't know why all these things happen in our lives, why that happened to my friend. But the comfort is that God has provided in scripture uh, a proof that he is in control of this world. He's actually given us the very words of his book, the Bible. This is actually God speaking to us. That's why we like open this every week, because we actually think God can speak to us. And we actually think uh, that he's provided for us, and that this is a, a Bible that at the end, that God provided uh, comfort to us. And we're going to get to more of that later. But that's the first thing we see, is that God provides comfort to us in Scripture. Um, but also, Peter didn't just quote Psalm 69. He also goes on to quote Psalm 109, where he says, Let another take his office. Which leads us to the second thing God provides for his church in the midst of loss. Uh, pastors, leaders, elders, uh, wise, godly men and women. And this, of course, begs the question, um, why did they need to pick a replacement? Like, why was that necessary? You see, in the Old Testament, there were 12 tribes, right? And they represented the whole Old Testament people of God, Israel. Well, in the New Testament, it's no coincidence that God picks 12 disciples, not to replace Israel, but to expand its borders, to not just be one ethnicity, but all nations and Gentiles, because that's where the gospel was always headed. The whole world would be filled with the glory of God. And so Jesus intentionally chooses 12 disciples, and now there's not one. And symbolism is incredibly important in the Bible, and so lest anyone think that God is not faithful to his word, he chooses one more to replace the need of the church in this loss. He's giving them another leader, another pastor. And so using wisdom, Peter understood that this replacement has to be qualified, right? Like just now today, pastors have to be qualified. Like you don't just let anyone do it. You have to make sure that they pass these qualifications, and it's an incredibly humbling thing to do. And also it's a calling. But, um, and the two things he gives is this. One is that someone has to be trained by Jesus. Verses 22 and 23, uh, Peter says he has to go in and out among us from the day of John the Baptist to the day of his resurrection. That the whole time, this person, whoever he is, has to have been trained by Jesus, heard all of his speeches, all of his parables, all of his teaching. And so first and foremost, your pastor, Mike, has been trained by Jesus. He's first and foremost a disciple of Jesus, right? And all your elders are, and deacons, and godly men and women. But also, uh, it has to be someone who saw Jesus after the resurrection. He has to be a witness to it. He couldn't just be anyone. So God was to provide the exact replica of Judas except the faithful one. And so uh, I simply want you to see that God has given church leaders to y'all like to provide comfort for you in the midst of your loss. Now you're to go to them. Like that's part of their calling and job is to comfort you through scripture and through their presence and through their prayers. 
Um, I think I've really begun to see this after doing this for a year of my job at Arkansas. Just finished my first year. And I could just tell you a thousand stories of the students I've heard. But one of them happened in early February where uh, Brant is a junior. He's in Pike. And we sat down and told me about a girl he had been sort of dating. They had hung out a little bit. And they had texted uh, many times. And uh, she had died in a car accident. And he just found out. I mean, he was a wreck. And what he was saying as he's like weeping, uh, this story is like, I just want to know if she'll forgive me. He didn't think that he had treated her always right. And he's like, will I ever have peace? And in that moment, as a pastor, as a leader, what I'm called to do is to comfort this man as he's trying to figure out how he's going to like, move on the next day and eat food and dress himself because he's got this great loss. And I, and I prayed and, and I wept with him and we hugged each other and we opened the scripture. But in that moment, as a pastor, that's what I was called to do, right? To comfort this man in his loss. And that is what you have in a pastor, in Mike. He's called to pastor you and love you and comfort you. And so I'd encourage you to go to him. Like, that's part of his calling in life. Um, and lastly, thirdly, um, the way that God provides for his people in the midst of loss is by giving his people prayer. I know that seems perfunctory, that seems... Uh, you know, cliche, but it is inc- incredibly powerful. When you experience loss, um, as I said, these are things that my students have lost this year. Divorce, uh, job, death of loved ones, virginity. They've, they've all lost this this semester. Is your immediate default to pray? Um, this is something I'm trying to work on uh, myself. Because when I see this, and this is what I was convicted of, the very first thing you see these people doing after, after Jesus sends them away to the upper room is that they pray. They devote themselves to prayer. Verse 14. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. Why? Because they had the loss. Jesus had bodily ascended. Judas had betrayed them. What are they called to do now? And their first instinct is to pray. And that's actually a way that God has provided for his people in the midst of loss is prayer. One reason is because of the God that we pray to. It says in verse 24... Right before they cast lots of who the next disciple would be, Peter says, you, Lord, you know the hearts of all. Like, we pray because God is the God who knows, like, the hearts of all people. He knows everything. He's in control. And this casting lots, by the way, was an ancient practice uh, to discern um, the divine will. So they take lots and they cast it on the lap, and it would tell them uh, what they were supposed to do. And the Bible actually doesn't condemn this. In Leviticus 16, they cast lots to see which goat would be chosen for the, day of, for the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. In Numbers 25, they actually cast lots to see who, uh, how they would allot the land for all the tribes. And in Proverbs 16.33, it says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. And so this practice by the ancient church was actually a way in which they took the choosing of the apostle, who Jesus had chosen all of them, out of their own hands and give it to God, and that God you would choose. But I also think it's no coincidence that we don't see uh, casting lots after this passage because of the next chapter where God actually sends his Holy Spirit. Where actually we have the Holy Spirit, the the Spirit of God dwelling in us right now. That is the belief of this passage. And so um, I'll let Mike talk about that next week. But it's at least to say to y'all that God is is in control. And so when we pray to him, that's who we're praying to. That's actually supposed to be comforting to you. Um, And I know it's not always because you don't always know why you're experiencing what you're experiencing. And that's why I think another thing that prayer does for us is it actually brings us together. You notice, right, verse 14, they were all doing it not by themselves in their own little corner. 
right? Like in their own easy chair in the morning without anyone else, although I'm like all for that. Um, they were doing it together with one another. And that prayer has this like tragic yet beautiful way uh, in the midst of loss of bringing people together. Uh, Emma Sapella is, uh, get ready for this, Associate Director of Stanford University Center for Compassion, Altruism, Research, and Education. It's like you need like a 10 uh, alliteration for that, 10 letter alliteration. But what she does is she studies how the effects of stress bring people together for this deep social connection. And she says, uh, one reason, and I use stress and loss because I think loss is incredibly stressful. And so I'm, I think the application is, is uh, the same here. One reason why stress may lead to cooperative behavior is our profound need for social connection, which we all know from uh, Genesis 1. We are made in the image of a triune God. Social connection may be particularly important under stress because stress naturally leads to a sense of vulnerability and loss of control. And you know that's how the church feels. They're totally out of control, right? That's why we have to pray. In our loss, we have to pray. But then she says this interesting comment. She says, war is one of the greatest stresses anyone could ever encounter, yet it also often leads to deep human friendships and incredible acts of heroism and sacrifice for one another. In my research with returning veterans, I've often heard them speak of the tight bond that occurs between service members on the battlefield, one of the most stressful situations that exists. Countless soldiers have perished, running into a line of fire to save an injured brother in arms. And some believe that it is these experiences of profound human bonding that despite the acute anguishes of war, which many of us know in our own friends and families, of pain, of loss, and of death, that actually make some veterans long to return to war. Like they want to go back to that situation, she says, because of the deep social connection that they feel with people in those moments. And what I want to say is that when we experience loss or stress in, our, in the church and in our own lives, that actually God has provided a way for us to have that deep social connection, not only with God, but with one another, and that's through prayer. And so we see that God comforts his uh, church in the midst of loss by providing them with scripture, with leaders, and with prayer. And look, you have to understand that this is actually the story of scripture, like that this is who God is. This is why uh, God provides clothing for Adam and Eve in their naked shame in the garden. This is why he provides a boat of salvation for Noah in a world filled with violence and corruption, or a child for Abraham and Sarah in their old age, or manna and water from a rock in the desert after he has rescued his people from slavery. Because God is a God who provides. He provides an invisible army of angels for his prophet Elijah and just one angel for his prophet Daniel in the scary sleepover in the lions. And of course, like all things, this theme of God providing fulfillment of, of providing for his people, actually finds its fulfillment, excuse me, in the life of Jesus, where Jesus, uh, we see that he provides calm in the midst of storms and food for thousands from a few loaves and fish in the midst of hunger and tears and resurrection life for Mary in the midst of loss of her brother Lazarus. Like, our God really is, throughout the whole of Scripture, a God who provides comfort in the midst of loss. Um, and so what does this mean for us? Look, um, I'm getting to know y'all. And so everything I say here is like for myself. And that sometimes the Bible can be boring and hard to understand. I get it. My students say it. Sometimes I'm like, what, why am I reading this in Leviticus? Um, but let me encourage you that God understands that. And um, that's why actually some of the reason is why we actually open the word and preach every Sunday. It, because God has given us a story in scripture of his love for us and this world he's made. And that is to comfort us when we don't know if God actually loves us. We were talking about that in Sunday school. That actually scripture is a way in which he can provide comfort to us. And also, I have this app called the Book of Common Prayer. 
and it has two psalms and three readings, an Old Testament, uh, a gospel, and an epistle, and it's literally 10 verses long, and you can take one minute and do that. That's actually what I use so that I can connect with God and, and, and provide comfort throughout the week. Um, and some of you need to know that you can actually go to Mike and Heath and the elders of this church and the older women and men in this church for comfort in your loss, to pray with them. Like, you can actually do that. Like, that's what we are here as a Christian community for. Don't do that alone. Like, please don't go through your loss alone. And also, uh, as we talked about this prayer, like, I don't know how you respond when you have loss. Upbringing for me was always suck it up. Just try harder, get over it. Uh, Let me encourage you that that is not what God says to you. That's not what he says to you. He says to you and me, uh, come to me, all who are weary, and I'll give you rest. He says that he's a God of all comfort. And so I pray that y'all would actually come together as a community um, and pray together. And I don't know what that looks like in the morning, after church for two minutes, uh, even on the phone sometimes. But those are ways in which you can actually comfort each other in the midst uh, of loss. Uh, I'll, I'll conclude with this. I just read, I know this is a little heavy, I'm sorry, it's just, you didn't think you would get that from this passage, I know. Um, I didn't either. Um, but maybe it's because I just read this, this uh, blog by a pastor named Scott Sauls. He's a pastor up in New York with Tim Keller at a PCA church called Redeemer New York, and he's now the senior pastor at Christ Pres in Nashville. He's one of those bloggers, uh, so you know, you got to read it. But he, he, I don't read everything he writes, but this was, I caught my eye because he said, the rise and downfall of pastors. And um, he said that in this past year alone, he's had five of his friends who are in the ministry have to leave the ministry because of moral failure. Five in one year of pastors that he knows. And of course, that like messes with me, right? So I'm going to read that. And, you know, he goes through and he talks about like it's only by God's grace that he doesn't do the same thing. It's by God's grace that I haven't in one year here at Arkansas. But I couldn't help as I read that passage wondering, like, how are those churches dealing with that, right? Like, how is the church handling the loss of their senior pastor going through moral failure and having to leave the ministry? A pastor that they've prayed to, they've prayed with, they've been counseled by, they've been loved by. They've gone to potluck dinners, their boys grew up together, they went to men's retreats, prayer meetings, like ice cream together, right? They did all these things with this pastor, and then they feel betrayed by him as he's fallen into moral failure. Like, what? How how is God going to comfort these churches in this loss? And I'm sure that God right now for sure is is comforting them by providing with them in Scripture, with other pastors, and and with prayer. But as uh, I think Tolkien rightly said through the mouth of Frodo in Lord of the Rings, there are some wounds and some loss in this world that never truly heal. And that in this uh, moment, some of you might um, have, you know, like my neighbor, you guys might resonate with that. Like there's this loss that might never be fully healed. The greatest comfort that we have is actually that God has given and provided his own son for us. That he knows exactly what you're going through because he gave up the son he loved, that he had dwelt with from eternity past and ripped asunder as we sang today and how deep the Father's love for us where the Father turned his face away. Why? For you. To bring you back into him and to fellowship with him because he loves you. And so while David in his psalm calls down curses on the Judases of the world, may their camp become desolate, our God, Jesus Christ on the cross, actually says something completely different. And he actually says, forgive them, Father. They know not what they do. So the greatest comfort uh, that we can take in this loss is that God experienced the loss of his own son for you and for me, for salvation for the church. And that's why we have this passage. Uh, it's because we need to be comforted in the midst of our loss 
And God has given us uh, scripture, leaders, prayer, and his own son to do so. Let me pray for us. Uh, God, loss is such a heavy subject, and I pray that as I think about the own losses in my own life, and I know that there are people in here thinking about their own losses, uh, God, that we, would, uh, that we would not miss this opportunity to be comforted by you, even though we don't know why, and we might never know why. But it can't mean you don't love us, it can't mean you're not for us, because you gave up your own son for us. So God, uh, I pray that you would be with uh, the men on their ride home coming here, that you would be with the people in this church that you love, that you've provided for, and that, God, uh, thank you for this scripture that teaches us that you care about our losses, and you seek to, to replace and comfort and provide for us in our loss, and ultimately, uh, the way you do that is in your son, Jesus Christ. Um, thank you for these people, and thank you for your son, Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.